morning, North Shore. We're continuing on in our summer teaching series on the Psalms of King David with Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is a very brief psalm. It's only 11 verses. And it was written at a very low time in King David's life. To give some context to when Psalm 63 was written and what its place in scripture is, let me recount very briefly the life of King David, uh, who he was and what his significance is. The story of the kings in general actually begins in the book of Judges. You will remember that God led Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and over 40 years eventually led them into a promised land. And in that promised land, he raised up judges who had authority to guide Israel during times of crisis, particularly crisis with these external warring nations that sought to overthrow Israel, take their land from them. And these judges had, um, had, had power and authority and led them and navigated in them through these times, but were never kings in themselves. Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, looked at the other nations that had kings, kings that had power and authority, palaces and armies, and were jealous that they looked a little bit like a, a backwater in comparison and asked to have their own king. Now, God informed them something that they should have already known. They have a king. He is their king. God himself is their king, and he rules on his throne from heaven, and he commands the angel armies. So they have nothing um, uh, uh to be jealous of in these other nations. Nonetheless, they ask for a human king. And so in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint Saul as the king. Saul certainly looks the part. He is tall, he's well-built, he's handsome, he has a sort of authority and presence about him. And so he is the king, but what we don't see is on the inside, he is a very petty and jealous man. Uh, he's a very small man on the inside. And he is not God's true choice. And Saul's ambition, his pride, and his selfishness begin to be seen in his kingship. And so God's presence leaves Saul, and Samuel goes and anoints a very unlikely character, the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd boy, David. And God's mantle is now upon David as the true king of Israel, although nobody knows this yet. Saul still officially holds the office of king. Only Samuel and David know that David is the true king, or in fact, God's chosen person to be king. And as God's presence has left Samuel through the book of First Samuel, sorry, has left Saul through the book of First Samuel, we see Saul sort of descend into insanity increasingly and increasingly. Uh, the pivotal point in the book of First Samuel is the face-off between the army of Israel and the army of the Philistines, in which Goliath comes forth from the Philistines and challenges anyone from the army of Israel to fight him in man-to-man -man combat. No one will do it. Goliath is everything that Israel fears. He is a giant, and they are small. The Philistines are large and powerful. Israel is small and weak in comparison. But David, who has God's presence on him, 
knows that God is with him and with Israel, and he does not fear Goliath. And he goes in this very famous story, you know, David slays Goliath. And at that moment, David's star, his celebrity, his importance and significance begins to rise in Israel. In fact, Saul adopts him into his own family. David's best friend is Saul's son. David's future wife is Saul's daughter. And through the course of the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we see that David becomes more and more powerful. He becomes a general in Saul's army. And the nation of Israel begins celebrating him more than Saul. And we see Saul's jealousy and his selfishness. Um, Saul <clears throat> turns on David, although David has not wronged him in any way and has only served him well, and seeks to kill David, chases him into the desert, into the wilderness. And um, David has opportunity to assassinate Saul and doesn't take that opportunity because he first and foremost respects God's choosing that he had chosen Saul to be the king and that no loyal Israelite would ever slay the king of Israel. He wouldn't do that. Um, he also loves and respects Saul and his family. And though he has opportunity, he doesn't take the opportunity. God leaves Saul to his own devices, to live by his own lights, by his own strength, and by his own will. And Saul's perverted will and desires and his, um, his selfishness lead him to his own destruction, and Saul dies in battle. The book of 1 Samuel ends with David lamenting over Saul's death. And the book of 2 Samuel opens with David taking the kingdom, becoming the great king of Israel, and leading Israel into some great military victories, expanding the reach um, and the scope of the nation of Israel, expanding their wealth, conquering Jerusalem, and establishing his throne there at that very important city, which is today the cultural, uh, political, and religious center of the nation of Israel. And so this is very much the golden age of Israel. All of Revelation, from Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, into Judges, prior to this point, is looking forward to this great golden age in which a king would provide Israel, not just with physical space, that's certainly important, not just political space and land and resources, but religious space, a place for themselves to freely worship, to have a temple to their God, to know him and to worship him, the God who had revealed himself to their ancestor Abraham who had saved them and led them out of Egypt. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as religious liberty. So in any other nation, they would not have the space to know and to worship their God, to read their scriptures, to speak to one another about their God. And so this golden age of Israel was everything they had been looking forward to. Unfortunately, the golden age does not continue on indefinitely. Although God makes a promise to, his, uh, to, to David that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne in Jerusalem forever and his house, the house of David, would rule forever. This great coming king. Now what human king can rule eternally? Well, no human king can rule eternally, but nonetheless, the promise is that a son of David would rule forever. David himself, however, although he was a man after God's heart who knew him and loved him, and as we read the Psalms and what David has to say about God, we know that he has a unique and profound relationship with God that's very instructive to us. It's very important for us to read the Psalms and learn to worship the way that David did and to speak the same words and to think in his ways. 
he was a man after God's heart, but make no mistake, he was very much a man. And he was very much flawed, very much a sinner. The great sin that we see in this person who, again, is a man after God's heart. You remember when kings should be away battling, leading their armies, David is at home in Jerusalem and he sees a woman bathing, Bathsheba, and he conspires to seduce her. He sleeps with her and he has her husband, Uriah, kill. Although Uriah was very faithful to him. This is an incredible sin. The prophet Nathan calls him out on this sin. And unlike Saul, who is prideful and despises God's rebuke, David repents and he confesses his sin. Although David is a man who knows and worships God, he's also an incredible, uh, discouraging, sinful man. Uh, ironically, he's both, um, much the way that we are both. And God um, continues to give his blessings to David and to David's house. God's promises to David are eternal and are not revoked in any way. But because of David's sin, his family begins to fall into disarray and dysfunction. Um, in the, the story of his children is not a pretty story. There's rape and incest. There's murder. Eventually, his own son, Absalom, rises up against him and begins a civil war in Israel, trying to take the throne from his father, David. And again, David flees into the wilderness um, in the midst of a kind of civil war in Israel, the revolt of, of Absalom. And it turns out that some of David's men eventually kill Absalom, and that doesn't please David. He laments the death of his son and the fragmenting of the destruction of his family. He will then pass along his kingdom at the end of the book of 2 Samuel to his young son, Solomon, the second son born of Bathsheba. And uh, Solomon would be the next king of Israel. And the fragmentation of Israel continues to be told um, in the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, we, we get the nation of Israel fragmenting and breaking into two. The northern kingdom is eventually conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is eventually conquered by the Babylonians. And all of Israel is taken away into exile. And all of God's promises in the Holy Land, uh, of living in a holy land and having freedom to freely worship God, seem to have all been taken away. We reach this golden age in 2 Samuel, this great high point for Israel. And then it's all downhill through David's sin, the fragmenting and destruction of, uh, of Israel the sacking of Jerusalem. At the end of the Old Testament, there's a little glimmer of hope. The Persians finally conquer the Babylonians and the nation of Israel is allowed to leave and return to Jerusalem. They don't all return. Some of them stay in Babylon. And so it's sort of a trickle back to Jerusalem under people like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but God's presence never returns to Jerusalem. And the Old Testament closes. It's a very discouraging story. Um, it would have been so nice to stop in the middle of 2 Samuel at the high point with David's kingdom, but that's not where Revelation ends. So Psalm 63 is actually written as David is fleeing from his son Absalom. It's written in the desert. And um, it's, it's a <clears throat> very brief psalm, as I said. Let me read it for you. 
only 11 verses, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul will cling to you. My right, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So Psalm 63, I think that David tells us three very important things as he is at the end of his rope and at the end of his kingship, in fact, he has nothing else. He has apparently lost everything. Even his own family has turned against him. He tells us very, three very important things. The first thing is that although he's a king that has had everything, he has had wealth, power, authority, women, armies, none of those things are truly what his soul needs. First and foremost, our souls thirst for God. Our souls thirst for God, first and foremost. Most people don't know that. They don't believe that. They roll their eyes at that idea, that our souls thirst for God. That's just religious talk. That's Christian talk. But ultimately, it's true, and every life ultimately testifies to that fact that nothing in this world truly fulfills. The great sign of that is that nothing in this world truly gives eternal life. No food, no water, no activity. They all leave us eventually destitute of life. And they leave us destitute of true fulfillment. Only God truly fulfills the soul. Now, there's a very important term there, soul. Let me just say briefly what a soul is. It's an important biblical term. What is a soul? Sometimes people ask, do we have souls? Do animals have souls? Uh, those sorts of questions. We speak of souls and we think of it as a sort of part that we have, maybe something deeply embedded in there. Uh, something not physical, but something that you have or that you can lose. You can lose your soul. Uh, that's not true. Uh, not biblically, at least. The soul is, in fact, what you are. Now, consider this. The Bible tells us that when we die, we go into be into God's presence. Your body goes into the ground. So you're not your body. You have a body. Like, I have clothes. I wear clothes. In a similar sense, I have a body. Now, in a more intimate sense, because... I feel my body. I don't feel any injury to my clothes, but I feel the injury to my body. So there's a deep connection between my soul and my body. But my soul is, in fact, what I am, what goes into be into God's presence. My soul is me. I don't have a soul. I have a body. I am a soul. And so the soul is what we are. Now, there's a number of biblical terms like strength, mind, spirit, that are all related to the term soul. Sometimes they're interchangeable depending on the context. Here's, I think, the best way to think of it. What you are is a soul, that immaterial part. I mean, think about this. You, you could lose your hand. Uh, your, your hand could be cut off, and you go on being you, you know, without a hand. 
Uh, you can lose various physical parts. We do all the time, fingernails and toes and skin and things like that, we lose all the time. And we replace those things all the time. You can go on being you, and in fact, you go on being you even without your whole body. You lose your whole body, you go on being you. So the soul is what you are, that non-physical part that encapsulates everything that is deeper than your body. Uh, and what's deeper than your body? Well, your very consciousness in life that gives animation to the body. We might say the biblical term there is strength. Your strength, your life, your consciousness, the very basic animating piece of what you are. Animals share that. Animals have basic life and consciousness. So in that sense, of course, animals are ensouled beings as well. Genesis tells us that God created the living souls. So what gives dogs animation in life? What gives a bird animation in life? It would be a dog soul or a bird soul, which are fundamentally different than human souls. Let's not confuse these things. And so human souls are made in God's image for eternal life. Um, to think of a wild animal like a lion. A lion dies. There's no biblical indication that a lion goes on living as a lion spirit or something like that. Lions that die don't go into the, in the presence of God. That's the end of it for the lion. But for you and I, it's not the end of things. We go on living in God's presence, looking forward to our resurrection, our re-embodiment, and our eternal lives, just as Jesus was resurrected, the first fruits of that promise to us. So strength is the basic animating uh, aspect of our soul. Um, the Bible also speaks of mind, which is the seat of our intellect and of our reason, of our thoughts and memories. I mean, think about this. As you gain enormous amounts of memories over the course of your life, your brain doesn't grow. Your memories are not in your brain the way that coffee is in your coffee mug. Um, because your brain would have to get bigger and bigger and bigger to house all the memories. But brain size is not related in any significant way to intelligence. We use our brains to think, certainly, but the thinking, the memories, the reasoning, all of that is housed in the mind, which is distinct, which is in the soul. So you take your mind with you, of course. That's part of who you are into the presence of God. Your memories and your thoughts and your knowledge are part of who you are. The heart is another biblical term, which is an aspect of the soul. It's the seat of our will, of our desires, of our affections, of our loves. There's a keen relation, uh, not keen, but a very important and deep relationship, I want to say, between the mind and the heart, and they mutually influence each other. And then there's this term spirit, and the spirit is perhaps the seat of our fellowship and of our prayer and worship and um, religious um, um, seat in, in our soul in which we have fellowship with God. Animals don't have that. Animals don't pray and worship. They aren't converted to Christ. Um, vicariously, nature sings to God and worships God through human worship. But this is a very unique aspect of the human soul. So the human soul includes, again, I think these are very important aspects to think of strength, basic consciousness, mind, that is the seat of reason and rationality and thought and knowledge, heart, which is the seat of our will and our affections and our desires, and then spirit, the seat of our fellowship with God and worship and prayer and these sorts of things. And that's what a human is. Verses one through four in Psalm 63, David tells us, that our whole soul, in all of these aspects, in all of these ways, thirsts after God. We're told and commanded uh, there to um, praise and bless God, to seek him, to look upon him, to remember him, and to cling to him. 
And so that would involve all of the aspects of our soul. We intellectually seek God. We want to know him. And so he's revealed himself in scripture. There is no virtue in being ignorant of God, of being an agnostic and saying, well, nonetheless, but I love God with all my heart, but I don't know anything about him. Sometimes people sort of uh, make a demonstration of their ignorance of God, and yet they still have this profound love as if that's faith. Nonsense. Nonsense. Um, I often ask my students, uh, when you're falling in love with someone, or perhaps you have the will to fall in love with someone, because they're all at this point in life and they want to perhaps find their lifelong relationship and get engaged, and I'll, I'll ask them, what is it that you do? Um, and I'll ask a newly engaged guy, I'll say, congratulations, you just got engaged. When you first met your fiance, what did you do? And he'll say, well, um, we went out and we went for coffee and I asked her tons of questions. We talked for hours and I wanted to know about her background, where she came from. I wanted to know what her favorite food was, who her friends were, what she liked to do, all of those things. Why did he want to know about her as if he's a biographer or something? What's, what's the purpose in knowing so many things about a person's life? Because what he's doing is with the mind, he is coming to have a clearer perception of her. He can see her from the outside and maybe he's attracted to her because she's pretty but he doesn't really deeply see her and know her yet. He has to ask probing questions and get to know her more um, in a relational way. And now he begins to perceive and see her more clearly. Perhaps as he gets to know her in a relational way, he doesn't like what he sees, despite the fact that externally she's attractive, internally he doesn't like it anymore. And so he probes in these ways to know, and in what he's doing is in fact, he's making space in his heart for her to uh, at least have the, uh, opportunity to grow affection and vice versa. And this is where relationships begin. And it's the same with God. Knowing God through scripture, through revelation, through debate and discussion with other believers gives a clearer perception of God. And we see him more clearly and that expands our soul so that we can worship him more deeply. So the mind affects the heart and then vice versa. The heart, we develop these affections, we know God, we um, have experiences with God, and that should, of course, affect our knowledge. And so there's a, a, a correspondence between these two things. So the first thing that David tells us in this psalm is that our souls thirst for God, and that secondly, that God satisfies the souls in all of these ways, in our strength, in our mind, in our heart, in our spirit. He satisfies the soul in all of those aspects. First and foremost, because he's great, and then secondly, because he's inexhaustible. Because he's great and he's inexhaustible, he truly fulfills. Uh, think of what Jesus says to the uh, Samaritan woman in John 4. She came to drink some water uh, from the well, and Jesus tells her, I have a better well of water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. John 4, 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And so the Samaritan woman says, give me this water so that I never have to come to the well again. That'll make my life easier. This eternal water that eternally gives. Remember, God made a promise to David that his son, his descendant, would sit on his throne forever. Well, no human can do that. God is the true king of Israel. And so God fulfills his will and also answers Israel's prayer by giving them a human king, a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is also fully God. Who conspired to write this story? Dozens of authors over thousands of years produced that story. Um, I think it's revealed by God, it seems to me. And so Jesus, wielding God's power and God's resources, God taking on human flesh, fully satisfies and saves the soul in this way. Think about a sailor 
who's desperately uh, pining for water because he's, he's lost, he's adrift at sea, and literally around him there's no land, there's just water. And more than anything, he needs to drink water. What a, um, uh, in, in, insane situation that would be. And some people have been in that situation, to be surrounded by water, but not able to drink any of it. Any of this salty water, he needs fresh water. And so in his insane desire for water, he decides to drink the salt water. If you've ever drank salt water, it's revolting. But perhaps if you're being driven crazy by thirst, there is some satisfaction some temporary satisfaction in feeling the water going in. But of course, that salt water is only going to dehydrate and make the problem worse. And that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in with sin. It seems that sin will fulfill and will satisfy. And so we pursue sin. We, rather than pursuing God and finding our ultimate fulfillment in him, we find our ultimate fulfillment in something else, in some relationship or some series of relationships, in some drug, uh, perhaps, uh, or, or, or who knows what. Um, in our own ambition, in our own pride and anger, we pursue these things and we seek to soothe them in various ways. And what it does is it only leaves us more and more empty. But yet God fully fulfills and fully satisfies. And so that's what uh, he tells us there in verses 5 through 8. Uh, because he's great and inexhaustible, he truly fulfills. Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10, David tells us a very similar thing that would be important to look at if you want to meditate on these things this week. David says this very fa famous line, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is good. When you've come to the end of your rope, when you're lost in the desert and you have nothing to drink, we are in a desert now um, in this, in this um, situation that we find ourselves in, in a social desert, in a cultural desert, in a health desert, in an economic desert desert and we've come to the end of our ropes taste and see that the lord is good that he truly fulfills and david when he lost his kingdom when he lost everything he lost his family he lost his authority he lost his power he found that he had one thing left and it was the only thing that he ever truly needed or ever truly desired and that was in god and all of our lives will come to that point all of our lives will come to an end and all of these issues in our lives will have been temporary all of the fighting the wars the needs and desires, the pains and the, the loves all come to an end. And then your life is over and there's one thing left. You've come to the end. And David often sees that and he remembers that. And he knows that only God satisfies and saves. And then the third thing uh, that he tells us in this psalm in verses uh, 9 through 11 is that God sets wrongs right because he's good. He satisfies and saves because he's great and he sets wrongs right because he's good. And so uh, the soul thirsts for God, but also vicariously, the world pines for God. All of nature is pining for God. And so he not only satisfies the individual, but he also sets things right in the larger world, um, the world around us, the cultures around us, the societies around us, and even nature itself. He sets wrongs right. And so... It's vitally important this, what the psalm is teaching us. It really is an encapsulation of, uh, of all of Revelation, that we need God, that we're empty without him, that we pursue wrong things, but when then we pursue him, he truly fulfills. He truly satisfies, and he sets all things right, and David understands that promise. This would be something very important to meditate on this week, uh, Psalm 63. I hope we do that together, and we talk about that with one another. 
And here's our, our task for this week. Here's, here's what we should be doing. We want to contemplate God with the mind more deeply, more profoundly, and we want to adore God with the heart more deeply and more profoundly. And so engage those two aspects of the soul. Remember the soul thirsts for God, the aspect of the mind and the aspect of the heart. Engage these things more deeply than we have before. Um, as I said, there's no virtue in uh, being ignorant of God, but uh, let's plan through the course of the rest of the summer and the rest of the year to delve more deeply into the scriptures and to see and to perceive God more clearly as he's revealed himself. He's given us this difficult revelation, which thankfully has been translated for us by uh, diligent scholars. But nonetheless, it's difficult, it's hard to understand, but it's been given for a purpose that we would struggle and that we would wrestle with it. And in that process, not just individually, but as a church, come to know and to perceive and to see God more clearly through that process. And through that, that difficulty of learning and knowing, as David says in the psalm, to seek, to perceive, to remember God in this intellectual sense, it's going to have a deep and profound impact on our hearts. We're going to make space in our hearts, just like someone falling in love, making more space so that we can drink in more of his own presence into our life. And as lives. And as that happens, we come to perceive him and love him more deeply. So we come to understand him more. And so let's continue to do that. That's, that's our application this week and every week um, to contemplate God with the mind and to bring him in and to adore him more deeply with the heart and to use Psalm 63 as a tool. I hope that you'll read it repeatedly many times over, meditate on it, ask God to give you clarity and to discuss it with others, debate it with others. Um, to pick it apart and think about its individual parts and, um, again, using it as a tool for your, your worship and your knowledge of God. Well, North Shore, uh, I wish I could be there with you. I'm looking forward to that day. Hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel for us. And so until that time, uh, I hope that you're well, and I'm looking forward to seeing you soon.